0: Please be praying for Pastor Stephen. He had some oral surgery work done a couple of days ago, so he gave me a call while we were driving back um, and asking if I could fill the pulpit today, so I'm glad to be able to serve that way, but you pray for him, for the Lord's uh, rich grace for him, and then you can hear what I sound like, so I'm studying and whatever, yesterday afternoon, and some kind of virus thing hit me. And I'm pleading with the Lord, <laughs> so Lord, please, please help me. So I thank God for his, uh, his mercy and his goodness and grace because um, I, I feel well enough to, to go for it. So uh, um, this is the first Sunday of a new year, and I, I realize culturally we tend to think of our calendar days a little differently. We pretty much think of our planning uh, according to the, more like the school calendar You know, we we think of the new year starting in September and kids head off to school and then we have our holiday break and then we continue on till uh, we get to June and then we have the summer months and, you know, those seem to be the regular cycles. But still there's something about (coughs) flipping the page on a calendar and realizing it's a new year when we we stop and wonder what lies ahead. We do wonder that, what lies ahead. And we're going to be looking... At a setting in the Word of God in the Book Revelation, and where John, the last apostle, is no doubt in his situation wondering what lies ahead, and then he sees the glorified and risen Christ. And whatever lies ahead, we have our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is at work in our lives, and He's at work in His churches, and we're going to take a look at that today. Uh, So let's go to the book Revelation, last book of the Bible. It's not Revelations, just one Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, and we go to chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And before I read the passage, let me give you the background. Uh, this is written around sometime around ninety to ninety-five A.D. At this point, John the Apostle—he's the last living apostle. The others have been martyred at this point. He probably was the youngest apostle. He's the one that leaned back against the chest of Jesus. Uh, at the Last Supper. They would eat around a table like spokes in a wheel, and so it was natural as he with Jesus behind him just to lean back. And there was a special tenderness Jesus had for him, so he might have been a very young man. He might have been in his late teens, uh, probably no more than his early 20s, which we also see because he commissioned John to take uh, Mary, uh, Jesus's human mother Mary, into his life and for her to take John into her life. And so he's real, he no doubt was the youngest disciple. And at this point, 90, uh, or 90, sometime around 90 AD, uh, he is the last living one, and he has been um, sentenced into exile on the island of Patmos. Uh, Rome had 34 prison islands where they would exile people. And usually what they would do, uh, they would, before the person was sent to the prison island, uh, they would be flogged with the, uh, the Roman whip tearing open their backs. They'd be given scant clothing, very little food, to it, it, frankly insufficient food, no shelter. They'd have to sleep on the ground, and it was uh, Rome's way of treating uh, the people they despised the most. Short of putting them to death. So, this is John, and he, the youngest he could be was late 70s, but more likely he was in his 80s, and this is what he was encountering at the hands of the Roman government. Uh, John was the one that had a very important and powerful ministry to churches in what we would call modern day Turkey, but it was Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus was one of the key churches, and from there, other churches launched out that uh, are unfolded in the book Revelation. John is now exiled on that island, and without a doubt, John is wondering what is going to lie ahead. And probably in some way, messengers from those churches have come and been able to get access to John and tell him what's going on in those churches. And then Christ answers So that's the background here. So Revelation chapter 1, let me read verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels, or the word there can simply mean messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. My usual custom, go through a passage, kind of break it down into parts, but the way this passage is laid out and Christ taking such a central point in the description here, I'm going to just go through that description and have us look at it and ponder that and then then pull uh, some points out that we should and could take with us but i will say this first point anytime we're talking about prophecy anytime we're talking about revelation the first point of anything about prophecy is the lord jesus christ he's first and foremost he's first and last and so when you do read the book revelation and don't be afraid to read it We have to realize it's showing us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and warning us of what is to come. And when we read book Revelation and we think, oh, there's a lot of things I don't understand. If you just take heart to what you do understand, that'll be enough. That'll be enough to keep you busy. And in fact, actually, the book closes with a promise that those who read this book, they will be blessed. Churches will be blessed reading it. So it comes with a special blessing. And I think it's because it shows us the culmination and it shows us where our faith has to be focused and where our eyes have to be. So first and foremost, and we can just get this point right up front, it is about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is first, that is foremost, that's beginning and the end. So keep that one in mind. So here we have John here on the island of Patmos and I it just he takes on this very personal description about himself, verse nine. He doesn't even refer to himself as an apostle. He simply says, "Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus." And it's just so interesting to note here, he's making this very personable, both with how he identifies himself with us, but also himself with Jesus. He doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ. He says Jesus. It is a very personal bond. It's so interesting that he's wording it that way as he's leading us into this glorious revelation, displaying the magnificent majesty of Jesus Christ. So John pulls us into this and gives us that sense of a personal bond with him and what is going on and what he's facing. When It says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. In the Spirit, he simply saying this. This was not something just of his imagination. This wasn't something of his design. This was something where he was fully aware that the Spirit of God had come upon him. This was something where he was aware the Spirit of God was the one who was moving and working and revealing this to him. He wants us to understand this is the Spirit of God at work that brings all of this to light at this point. And when I mention about what he is looking ahead toward and where his concerns are, we see that his love for the churches is going to be answered here as the one with the voice, the Lord Jesus Christ, says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, and he lists them here, and then Revelation 2 and 3 are the seven churches. Five of those churches were losing a grip on their testimony. Some were compromising, some had simply become dead, they had the, they had the right belief, but their faith was not really active and their love was not vibrant. Others had compromised with immorality or compromised the message of Christ, And really, you could look at those seven churches, and you can see all of those same problems in churches throughout the world today. And so when you look at Revelation 2 and 3, you see these warnings to the churches and what the Lord has to say to them. But as it unfolds further here, now John turns to see the voice. He's heard this voice. He now wants to see who this is. So let's look at verse, starting at verse 12, and just see what is happening here and how Jesus is described to us. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And just for beginning, we see this, that he is going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ does walk among his churches. He walks among us. He is personally involved with our church. And this church is made up of the living stones of those that know Christ. And Jesus Christ walks among us. And he's letting John know, John, this is where my concern is is for the churches that are to carry my light to the world. So we just see that, first of all, that Jesus Christ sets that right before John's eyes and right before our eyes, the golden lampstands. Verse 13, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now the descriptions begin. One like a son of man, This picture comes from Daniel 7, as Daniel is shown the the, uh, unfolding of the final days and the ancient of days coming to lay claim to the earth and establish his kingdom, and the one who comes is called the Son of Man. Son of Man is the title Jesus most often used to describe himself. That's the one he most often used. It simply does not, it does not simply or only mean that he was genuinely human, but it also means that he is the lead man. He is the top of the human race. He is the one above all. To put it in our vernacular, he is the man. That's how how it would be, you know, the Son of Man is like saying, he is the man. This is the one. And so Daniel 7 describes him that way, and Jesus referred to himself that way more often than any other title. He would, And you can read it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He would call himself the Son of Man. And without a doubt, his listeners, during his earthly ministry, they knew what he was saying of himself. That he was the fulfillment of the one that had been promised in Daniel so he gives this description here as the Son of Man, the man. This is the one above the human race, clothed with a long robe. And a robe back in those days would represent dignity, it would, could represent uh, the idea of, of authority, of a, of a role of ministry. And so he sees this long robe, and John recognizes this is the one who comes with ministry, with dignity. This is the one who comes with authority. And then also with a golden sash around his chest. Now this is an image from the Old Testament priests. And it's very interesting what goes on here. And he says a golden sash. It doesn't mean some hammered gold solid thing. A sash. And you ladies know you wear sometimes a long scarf. You might have it draped across. That's what the sash was. It was draped across. Now here's what's interesting. The... Priests in the Old Testament had a sash, and it had threads of gold. Not 100% gold, threads of gold. And I think the idea was to let the priests know that in all of their humanness, all of their own sinfulness, and as we've been going through Hebrews, it says the priests in the Old Testament, they had to offer offerings, first of all, for whom? Themselves. They were sinners. They had to be cleansed and washed. But they had a sash with some gold and threads in there. Meaning that there would be times, despite their frailty and despite their humanness, that they would come across with some gold. I mean, let me put it this way. Now, every one of us that knows Christ, we're a priest for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it's like. When you leave a situation and you actually said the right thing. You actually didn't respond badly. You actually showed the right attitude. And you walk away. And you're like, wow. <laughs> that wasn't like last Thursday. And, uh, and it's, it's like we see a golden thread for that moment. A golden thread for that moment in our priestly life for Christ. But as John sees the glorified Savior, his sash is 100% golden threads. Now that means our great high priest, 100% cares for us. One hundred percent knows what we need. One hundred percent knows how to pray for us and intercede for us. Your great high priest one hundred percent knows who you are and what you're going through. One hundred percent. And here is John beaten man in his old age, left in exile on Patmos, assigned to hard labor, probably in the rock pits, and he looks and as he sees the Son of Man, he sees that golden sash and he knows, my Savior is caring for me. That golden sash, don't rebuy it too quickly. 100% 100% perfect care from our great high priest. He goes on here. <clears throat> Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And here it's describing an image. And you just think of it. Um, when you see someone with white hair, you generally think they're older. Um, when Nancy and I, we traveled, uh, made a trip to Africa back um about 20-some years ago with on a kind of a missions trip, and um, and I was speaking to one of the African leaders, and he said, well, you will be shown great respect here. He said, uh, I, I said, well, they don't really know him. He says, no, he says, you are a pastor, you have training, and you have gray hairs. And <laughs> so just remember that, all right? Would you just, okay. Just, so, and he says, we respect the gray head. And so this image here, the white hair, this is showing the age. This is showing the sense of wisdom. But it probably is reflecting too the eternal sonship of Jesus. This is showing that his life did not simply begin at Bethlehem. That's when he came in the flesh to earth. But now seeing the white hair was a way of setting this picture. This is the eternal son of God from eternity past. He goes on here. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And this is the piercing, burning look of his eyes upon what's going on and upon his people. Don't be afraid of the burning piercing eyes of the Lord Jesus every single one of us who know Christ here every single one of us we have all of these hidden away inside battles with our sinful humanness the pride the stubbornness the greediness the lack of compassion the lust the excesses that we give ourselves over to, we all battle this. And they're inside of us. And we have ways of covering over, so we try to keep them from not showing up. But the burning eyes of the Lord Jesus sees it. And don't be afraid of that. Because his eyes, like a flame of fire, when he gazes on those hidden things, opens our eyes to look at the cross and say, these sins have been paid for. My Savior has washed me clean. He's given me his Holy Spirit. So he sees his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Burnished bronze is also probably what we would call brass, and it was uh, heated and fiery, and it was at that time to them the strongest metal they had, burnished bronze. It would be like titanium for us today. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And John now sees the glorified Savior as the one who has gone through intense suffering. And that suffering, the height of the intense suffering was at the cross when Jesus Christ took the wrath of God in the place of sinners. But also he walked paths of suffering. He felt the sufferings of his people. He agonized over his, people, his people's waywardness at times. Jesus could feel that. But as John sees the feet of burnished bronze, he sees a Savior glorified, but still carries the marks of his own sufferings. John is assured he feels my sufferings. He knows my struggles. And as he was refined, and Hebrews says, and it's an amazing statement, Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. It didn't mean he wasn't obedient. Rather, in his humanness, he learned new lessons of obedience to the Father because of the sufferings he was going through. It's an amazing statement there in Hebrews. And as John sees the glorified Savior and those feet of burnished bronze He realized this is the Savior who knows the sufferings that my feet walk through. His voice was like the roar of many waters, probably just reflecting the idea that when Christ speaks, it is a roar. When his word goes out to all the nations like the oceans cover the earth, this is the one who is speaking to the nations, roaring out his word to all the lands, to all the peoples. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And we'll talk about the stars in a moment. The sharp two-edged sword is not the same sword as Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. That one in Hebrews 4.12 is uh, the short dagger for hand-to-hand combat. It's for more precision work. If you can call it precision work. I'm quoting some commentator. I'm not sure that I like that anyhow, but it's it's uh it's a handier short thing. No, this one, the sharp two-edged sword was the massive battle sword. Double-edged, and you had to hold the hilt with both hands. And it was for bringing great destruction. John is realizing that what Jesus is going to be saying to him is going to be words of overwhelming judgment and destruction. Jesus is preparing John to understand that. When you read the book Revelation, and this is a fearful thought, when the judgments begin to fall on the earth, mercy has ended. And the terrors rise up. And Jesus Christ will come and he will judge the nations for their rebellion. For their bloodshed. For their immorality. For their hostility against the living God, their creator. And Jesus is going to speak. And his words are going to be words of terrifying judgment. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And simply there, you can understand that well enough. We can glance at the sun, but it would overwhelm our eyeballs. But here, John is overwhelmed with the glorious majesty of the face of Christ. That he, And he can't even see the face of Christ. He is so filled with glory. So here's what happens. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now here's the seven stars. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word angel uh, simply is the word messenger, and that's why in some translations it says messenger and others says angels. It's usually in the context you have to determine what kind of messenger. Is this a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger? It's the same word. I think there's good reason to believe that he is talking about earthly messengers Because John has come to find out what's going on in the churches, and it's a burden upon his heart. And there is a messenger that will be going back to these churches, each one of them, with a message from the risen and glorified Savior, the Lord of the church. And when we start thinking about that, the messenger of the church is likely the one who has the primary responsibility of bringing the word of God to that congregation. And they would have elders, but usually there were some who were more commissioned to carry on that work of bringing the word of God to the people. So let's think for a minute here of what we can pull together from some lessons. And let's just start there with the seven stars, the messengers in the hand of the Savior. This is a sobering thought. Our Lord Jesus Christ holds our pastor in his hand. He is a messenger commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us the word. Others of us who fill in, we are in the hand of Christ to bring the word as messengers for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ has appointed one to be that primary messenger. And so it's urgent and it's absolutely necessary that we pray for him and pray much. We live in a day and age and we live in a Christian culture of of what some can call the celebrity pastors. And how many celebrity pastors have we seen fall by the wayside? And they get the big churches and they get the big money and they get the big applause and the big recognition. And then we find out they've drifted off into bad doctrine, immorality, financial um, misappropriations and all kinds of things. Watch out. We have to remember that our pastor, when he brings the word, is being held in the hand of the glorified Savior as a messenger to bring us the Word of Christ. No small thing. It's an old gospel song. Uh, pray for me as I try to preach the Word. I, I was going to look it up and I forgot to. Uh, some of you, if you're old enough, you might have heard that one. And I, when I first heard, I thought, "Well, you know, try for me, you know, pray for me as I try to preach the Word." Well, then, as I got into preaching the Word more, I understood how on earth am I going to preach God's Word. And when you're sitting listening to Pastor Stephen preach the word, you pray for him. He's struggling to get that word across to us that we need to hear from Christ. His job, his calling is to help us hear the voice of the chief shepherd. His role as our shepherd is to help us hear the voice of the chief shepherd, Jesus. And he is held in the hands of the Savior. Some other lessons that I think we need to draw from this. It is very important when you see this overwhelming description of the glorified Christ. That we make certain that our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch out. I mean, I know just about everybody here and some I know better than others and some I barely know. But let me just lay this out here. Every single one of us, every single one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. We will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, I have a different view on that. I have a different opinion. You can have a different opinion about gravity if you want. But if you jump off the roof, gravity is going to be the same. You can have a different opinion about electricity. But if you climb up one of these power poles and grab hold of the two connectors on the transformer, you're fried. You can have any opinion you want. But you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of glory. Jesus said, all judgment has been given to me by my Father. We will stand before Christ. We will stand before Christ. And I, and I always, I, I, I put it this way, we'll stand before him without any pockets. And what I mean by that, we won't have in our pockets a list of excuses. There'll be no pockets. There'll be no excuses. We will stand Before Christ. Make certain your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just lay that out here. Make sure you're not just Christianized. You know, you have some couple Bible verse plaques on the wall. You go to Camp of the Woods and hear fifty sermons over the summer. You mumble your way through a couple of the choruses. And you kind of like the Christian culture. It's kind of like nice people. Make sure you're not Christianized. Make sure you know Jesus. Make sure you know Jesus. And especially, I give that challenge to those who have grown up in a Christian home. It is a great privilege to grow up in a Christian home. I did not, I had an awful lot of on the job training when I got married, and I didn't know what went into being a Christian dad and a, a, a Christian husband and then a Christian dad. There was an awful lot I had to learn, and my wife kind of coached me through because she grew up in a Christian home. It is a wonderful foundation to have, but you must make certain that you meet Jesus Christ and know him. Not general God talk, but that you know Jesus, that you know Christ. That's absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. And I make that appeal. And if you're not sure of that today, I'll be around. And afterwards, you can speak with me and say, Greg, I think I've got a lot of Christian stuff, but I'm not sure I have Christ. I don't know for sure that I really trusted Christ as Savior. Talk to me. Talk to Stephen. Talk to some Christian you respect. But make sure of that, for we will all stand before Jesus Christ. I think another point we want to draw from this, too is we remember we must pray for our suffering brothers and sisters in the world. Almost every Wednesday night, we pray for our brothers and sisters in a different country. And um, it's like 60 countries now. We can't even get through the list in a year's time. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who are going through suffering for their faith. They need our prayer support. And those of you that are here on Wednesday night, you you know what it's like to pray for them, and you know that that joy and that bond we sense as we're holding them up in prayer. And uh, just like, uh, well, it's just as oftentimes we see in our lives, there's an ebb and flow, and in these different countries. They might be going around, going things that are going along normally, and then suddenly persecution can erupt, the government can turn against them. They live with that daily. They need our prayer support. Another way that I think we need to think about this, and uh, as we turn the page on this calendar, our New York State Legislature begins a new session in a couple of days. Our governor has six different proposals she's put on the table with the legislatures. One of them is she is asking the legislature for power for her to imprison without trial, without due process, anyone she deems a threat to public health. Maybe some of you had heard about this, but this this is what she wants. This is once you cross that line, you go from being an oppressive governor to a tyrant. She has already made clear to the people of New York. She celebrates abortion. She promotes abortion. She promotes it nationwide. And now she wants this power. And if you think, well, just go ahead and get the vaccini- vaccination and go ahead and get the nine boosters after that and just, you know, go ahead and get all your shots and you won't be considered a threat. If you think tyrants are reasonable, you do not understand tyranny. If this passes, This will be the power of our state to imprison for up to 90 days anybody they think is a public health risk. And how broad is that definition? The reason I bring that up here, whatever troublesome burdens she might put on the believer's, The thought of how it'll be for her when she stands before the Lord Jesus Christ is terrifying. It is terrifying to think about that. Her authority is derived from God, and if she abuses that, she gives an account for that. And she is judged accordingly. And I think we need to really pray for our governor You wonder, how do we pray? Pray she comes to Christ. Pray that the Lord will either bring into Himself or remove her for her own good, for her own sake. Pray that the Lord will terrorize her soul with His holiness and the fear of judgment. You're saying, yeah, but that really, really happened. Numerous times in the Old Testament, you will find this, where God would terrorize the soul of a pagan ruler and they would shudder before God. We must pray for our governor. We must pray for our legislatures uh, and uh, pray for the Lord to work there. As I look at these verses here, and I think of some of the lessons brought out, I, I finish with this one. Whatever lies ahead, and think of John here, our brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. And he was wondering what lies ahead. And he knew what lay ahead. Eventually, he would be with Christ. Eventually, Jesus Christ would lay claim to all the earth again. And as we're wondering what is going to lie, what, what, what's, what lies ahead for us? Well, we can be sure of this. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns over all. He is our Lord and Savior. He will care for his people. He will walk among our church. He will hold our pastor in his hand. And he will help us carry that light to the world. And we need to pray, as he mentions here, the lampstands, we need to pray that the Lord will keep our church focused on the word of God and the gospel and making it clear and focusing on Christ so that our message is clearly from the word, that we won't look for what the latest trend is or what the culture hopes that we'll get on board with, but we will say we will open God's word and we will preach God's word because it is the voice of the chief shepherd. And that's what we do here. We open it up and we go through books of the Bible. This is what the chief shepherd says. Pray that this church will stay faithful. Pray for our leaders and pray for our elders and deacons. So this passage today as we start the new year is the one that was on my heart and mind that I thought would be good for us to give some focus to and to ponder. How glorious is our Savior and what a vivid description we see given of him in his position as the one who reigns over all, ascended to the Heavenly Father. Let's make sure our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and let's make sure our hope and our peace is Is settled on him. I don't know what the day, what the year is going to hold, but I know who holds the year. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that it will later say in Revelation chapter 5 there was only one who had the authority to take the scroll out of the Heavenly Father's hand and open up the events, open up the scroll to unfold the events to come. Only one was qualified in all of heaven and earth to take the scroll, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he took the scroll in his hand, all of heaven and earth bowed down in worship and praise. That's our Savior. Praise his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word now, and we ask your gracious blessing on us. Uh, Lord, uh, uh, I pray that uh, what we looked at from the word can be certainly helpful for your dear people. We do pray for our brother Stephen, our partner and brother in the challenges of ministry, that your spirit will be upon him in rich and abundant ways. I pray, Lord, for us as elders that we'll stay faithful and the deacons also faithful to their tasks of supporting the elders and caring for the church. We pray, Lord, for our church, that your spirit will be mightily and powerfully at work, that we can spread the gospel like roaring waters out to all around us. And we ask our Lord that you would terrorize the heart of our governor, that she would be driven to the gospel and have mercy, O God, and that you would save her. And stop her in this madness. Lord, we put ourselves in your hands. And we thank you for your faithful care. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that our hope is in you. Amen.